0: Good morning. Good morning. Kurt Warner played college football for Northern Iowa University, and he had dreams of playing in the NFL, but he found himself not playing there, and in fact, he was playing for the Iowa Barnstormers, um, an arena football team, and he did that for three years. And then he got a call uh, from the Saint, what was then the St. Louis Rams, And they signed him on their roster to be a backup quarterback. And they went into their 99 season um, thinking that they had a great starter and they had this dude who they hoped never played named Kurt. Trent Green got hurt right at the very first of the season. And Kurt Warner took over. And those of you who are NFL fans know that he went on to have the most amazing first season ever, led the Rams to the Super Bowl, um, ended up being not only the Super Bowl MVP, but the league MVP for that year. And he was tied to the head coach for that year for the Rams was a guy named Dick Vermeil. Now interestingly enough, Dick Vermeil is a local. Um, his uh, first let's see, let me get this right his first coaching job oh, he went to San Jose State and was quarterback for San Jose State. And he actually was a starting quarterback the year I was born. For San Jose State. Which I'm old, so that makes him like real old, right? That was a long time ago. Leather helmets and the whole deal. He began his he began his coaching career at Del Mar High School here in San Jose and eventually, yeah. Eventually ended up going up, going to Stanford and then into the NFL. Well, this story was so unbelievable that um, it, they felt like it would make a great movie. And so recently, in the last uh, couple of years, we, there was a movie that came out. I don't know how many of you have seen that, but it's called American Underdog. Now, got me to. The, I needed all that for you to get to the story. Now, here's the story. Dana and I, uh, this past summer, I think it was Christmas time. Thank you, hon. Um, <laughs> at Christmas time, we, we were in the Auburn area, and we do what old people go to the movie in the day. Um, and so and Dana and I, at least I'm old, so she goes with me. And so um, we're, we go to like the 1 o'clock show or the 2 o'clock show. Anyway, it's the middle of the day. When we go in there, there's nobody there. We, we have our choice of seats. It ends up being about six or eight people watch the movie with us. I think that's about right. Okay, got it. We watch this American underdog. Dana and I are like, yes, we're Kurt Warner fans, not Ram fans. Sorry. <laughs> But we're Kurt Warner fans, and so his story is really great, and the the movie does a good job of portraying this story. So after the movie, in the middle of the day, I do what all old men do. I go to the bathroom, thank you very much. (laughs) I'm standing at the urinal, and as I'm standing there at the urinal, um, an old man shuffles in. By old, I mean older than me. And he shuffles in and he stands at the urinal next to me. Now, if you can just kind of picture some of this, not too much of it. I'm standing there and I do what I, do what I normally do when somebody walks up beside me. Hey, hey, how are you? And he's a little shorter than me, which means he's really short because I'm already short. And, he, and he, says, he says, hey, I'm doing good. Did you enjoy the movie? I said, I did enjoy the movie. He said, I was at that Super Bowl. I said, no way, you were not. Really, you were at that Super Bowl? He said, yeah, I'm Dick Vermeil's brother. And I'm going this summer, I'll go to the Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio, and I'll see Dick get inducted into the Hall of Fame. And, and I'm like, and then I look at him. You know, I haven't really looked. You don't want to pay too much attention. <laughs> And I looked at him, I said, you look just like your brother. He looked just like Dick Vermeer. So, And so I asked my wife, what's the equivalent to standing at the urinal for ladies? And she said, we stand at the sink and wash our hands. And she said, and she said y'all probably didn't do that. <laughs> Thank you very much. To get the whole deal, I had, we washed our hands together as well. My point of this is is this. In in Auburn, in the middle of the day, in the least likely place you'd ever think, I met Dick Vermeule's brother. Everybody is somebody. Everybody is somebody. And that theme screams through the scriptures. But you gotta understand that That wasn't the way it was in the first century. The first century ethics were really formed by some Greek teachers that had come before the Roman um, experience, and it was Plato and Socrates and Aristotle. And these three teachers, these three philosophers, these three guiders of what ethics were like in the first century taught that people were born for different levels of importance and value. Consistently, these guys teach this. It is is not part of the Roman culture for anyone to say, we're all built for a purpose. No, you weren't. These people taught, these three and others, this is from a book called The Air We Breathe, They taught that the opposite lesson of our modern tales that we experience. Nowadays, the hero casts off the shackles of tradition and hierarchy to release their awesome inner potential. Ancient people were taught in a thousand ways every day to know their place and their rank. There were superior races, There were superior sexes. There were superior classes of people. Aesop's fables, actually, which were six, seven centuries before the time of Christ, actually have stories of this, where stay in your lane. Don't do what you're not supposed to do. And this this air that we breathe now... That Oh, everybody has unlimited potential. You can do and be everything you want. You are so affected by Christ's teachings. Our culture is so affected by Christ. This did not exist until Christ comes on the scene. And along comes Christ, and he says this. Love God, of course. It's foundational. If you don't love God, nothing else works. But also, love your neighbor as yourself. I want to take a look at that concept, that everyone is someone, and the command to love your neighbor. So let's pray together, and we'll be in Romans chapter 13. Thank you, Father, for the, con- the opportunity to come together and to proclaim in song and in readings the truth of who you are and what you've accomplished on our behalf. Thank you for the privilege of being able to open your word without threat of censorship. Thank you, fairest Lord Jesus, that you understand each of us where we are and the mood we've come in with, the burdens we carry or the the state of mind that we have. May as we open up your word, may we see the great call and value of people around us. And when we... Each of us that claim to know you, obey the truth to love our neighbor as ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. This call to love your neighbor is taught actually throughout the scriptures. You might be surprised to know that it's first given to us in Leviticus chapter 19. Now, Jesus comes along and takes that command in Leviticus and ties it to the Shema, the love of the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He puts those two together and says, you, if you're doing one, you have to do the other. They, otherwise, you're not doing one of them. And we see this over and over again. Six times in the Gospels, Jesus repeats this phrase, love your neighbor. And then we see it again uh, written by first, in 1 first John. John will say it. Paul will say it. James will say it. It's just throughout. So I want to take you to a place where I haven't taken you before when I've talked to you about love your neighbor because this has been something we've talked about or someone on our staff has talked to you about this for years and years. And it's in Romans chapter 13. Let me read you the passage. Let no debt remain outstanding. Now, let's, here's the deal. This is not a financial passage. It's not teaching necessarily whether you should have debt or not. So those of you who are gonna get distracted, just resist it. Be strong. Don't think about credit cards or anything like that. That's another message and another passage. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. Now this is important because what is going on in the book of Romans is that basically Paul has said there's a reason that we need God and that's because we're as bad off as we can be without him. And we owe a debt we can never pay. But Jesus Christ came and brought righteousness to us and therefore there's no condemnation between us and Christ because of that. And then he begins to explain what it looks like for God to express his love towards us. Then in in chapters 9, 10, and 11, he talks about us being tied into the Old Testament stories. Then in chapter 12, he starts to talk about what's it look like for us to respond to the great love expressed to God. By God to us. And he says some things in there about what it looks like to love. And then that's where we are right here. He's starting to talk about this is what it will look like. And all of those commandments are fulfilled in this one thing. Verse 9. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And whatever other command there may be. So I love it. Paul does this all the time. He'll do that, like, nothing can separate. He does it earlier in Romans. Nothing can separate you from this. Not this, 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 not this. And whatever else I missed. And that's what he's saying here. All the commands and every other command you could ever think of are summed up in one, this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Paul is teaching we can never repay, but we can obey. We can never repay, but we can obey. Five words, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, there's a danger now right here. You're going to say, heard it, got it, next. But let's just slow down a little bit with this. Let's take those phrases one at a time. What does Scripture say about love? Now, well, this is a tough one because our culture would teach you that love has much more to do with a physical attraction, a feeling inside of your gut, something that's going on that's a quiver in your liver. And the scriptures are actually quite different than that. Love is not an emotion, but it does nourish emotions. Love is a choice of our will. I mean, the example would be in marriage. If anybody in the room's been married any time at all, Dana and I working on our 43rd year together. I know, patience of Dana, she's a stud. Um, Love has emotion, but it's so much, that, that part has long since sailed for the basis of our relationship. And the scriptures are consistent with this, that um, love is actually, I love the definition, to will the best for another and having a desire for union. So two aspects, to will the best. My attitude towards that person is I want what's best for them genuinely, and I'd like to be connected with them relationally. 1 Corinthians 13, long passage. Let me read it to you. Some of you are going to drift back into a wedding scenario, as last time you heard this. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I am a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardships that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. Love never fails. Where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I will know fully even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. It doesn't say, now, arguably, the most celebrated, honored, and known passage about love in all that has ever been written by a man or a woman. I just read it to you. You know what it didn't say? Love is happy. Love is horny. Love feels good. And this is a challenge for us because we are so seeped in our culture that love is an emotion. And it, is, it does elicit emotions in us, but it is so much more than that. When we're talking about love for a neighbor, we're not talking about just feeling good about people. We're talking about something that willfully expresses itself and has the other person's situation above our own. Now, all this is fine until Jesus messes with it. Because love your neighbor is fine until your gets in the way. Because Jesus in Luke chapter 10, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, defines who your is in such a way that it, it just blows up all of our limitations. We see this When in Luke 10, there's an expert in the law who, that means that he's recognized and has gone through some training and some very strict things. He demonstrates um, a compliance with all of the rules. And he asks Jesus, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, well, obey the law. And how do you read it? And he says, well, yeah, I need to do all of these things. And then the expert in the law says, I've done all that but wanting to justify himself, he says, who is my neighbor? And then Jesus tells a story that probably most of you are familiar with where a guy gets beat up on the side of the road and people that have just come from leading worship and teaching the scriptures go by the dude and ignore him. And then someone who was not in worship and did not teach the scriptures, and in fact wasn't even allowed to go into the scripture, into the teachings. Stops and loves him. It says, in such a way that there is sacrifice and time. He sees that person where the other people ignore him. And in this, he says, now at the end, he says, now who, who was the neighbor? Who, who? Who was it? And and Jesus and Jesus says, it was the guy who extended himself. He was the one who obeyed the command. So who is your neighbor? Well, you need to understand neighbor is not just those who are near, those who you like, those who are close. Jesus has blown that thing up to say, your neighbor is actually Someone who is in the ripple effect of your life. I took this from Andy um, Gridley who's preaching over at the South Hills Campus. I just love this definition. Someone who has the, is inside of the ripple effect of your life. Whenever you're dropped in a pond and your life kind of splashes and spills over, who does that ripple effect take? Even just smallest of ripples. That's your neighbor. That's, that's your neighbor neighbor that's that's the one that's jesus said it it extends out they don't have to look like you i even agree with you you don't even have to like them but you have to love them you have to will their best this word for neighbor shows up 22 times in the new testament And it's a consistent theme. Let me read from you out of Matthew chapter 22. Teacher, this person asks of Jesus, which is the greatest commandment of the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus' explanation on this, he says, all of the law and the prophets, all of them, Hang on these two commandments. you will say it again in Mark. He says it in Luke. We see it in Romans. We see it in Galatians. We even see it in James chapter 2 where it says, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you will be living right. Last phrase then, what does it look like to love your neighbor as yourself? This is where we get kind of tripped up to. This is confusing. I know that some of you, um, I live with one who struggle with their self-image and their views towards themselves. I think all of us kind of hear two voices inside, and, and some of us in the room, that voice is primarily a critic. I won't ask you to raise your hand, but we could do that, and probably most of the room would say, yeah, I live with that inner critic that one that is constantly telling me I can't do it, I can't do it, I can't do it. Then there are some of us, I happen to be one, who lives with a cheerleader. My inner voice is telling me you can, you can, you can, and that's just as bad. <laughs> Let me just tell you, some, I know the inner critics are saying, oh gosh, what I wouldn't give for a cheerleader. I mean, I, it, it, there's just negatives to both sides. Let me just, just say that. Thinking you can when you can't is called arrogance. Arrogance is anti-spiritual to the life of Christ. Thinking you can't when you can is also called arrogance because your emphasis is still on yourself. To love free, to... Give love as you love yourself is kind of like to, I've been freely forgiven, let me freely then respond to others. C.S. Lewis said it this way You're told to love your neighbor as yourself, but how do you love yourself? When I look into my own mind, I find that I do not love myself by thinking of myself as a dear old chap or having affectionate feelings for myself. I do not think that I love myself because I'm particularly good but just because I am myself and quite apart from my character. I might detest something which I have done nevertheless I do not cease to love myself. In other words that definite distinction that Christians make between hating the sin and loving the sinner is one that we're making with ourselves all of the time. You may even think that you ought to go to the police and own up and be, in, be hanged, but love is not an affectionate feeling. It is a steady wish for the, for the loved person's ultimate good as far as it can be obtained. It is a steady wish to, as I said earlier, will the good of others. You certainly will do that for you, regardless of which voice you hear. And when you make mistakes, you don't dismiss yourself, You deal with forgiveness however you do that inside of your personality construct, but you still want the best for that, to love others that way. And it just comes out all the time in the Scriptures. Now, you're familiar with this phrase. How do we live it out? How do we live it out and what's the consequences of not living it out? That's the rest of our time together. The problem in living this out is that we're constantly trying to figure out how much compassion do we extend. So if verse 10 in Romans 13 said that love does no harm to a neighbor, what does that look like? Here's a couple of ideas for you uh, from my own life. First, train your eyes. Train your eyes. Notice people. If your budget and your calendar don't say that you're noticing people, then you're not. Those are the two, you wanna know if you're noticing people around you? Just check out your calendar, check out your budget. If those things don't reflect time with others, and I'm not talking about the people who like you, Jesus would say, if you only have dinner with those who will invite you back for dinner, that doesn't that count. I mean, well, how do you, re- I mean, just noticing people. I mean, just, I I do this all of the time with y'all, is that I, I come out early and I'll shake your hands and I'll just think, I wonder what kind of story got them here in this seat. I wonder what all God had to do to get you right there, right now. The scriptures teach me that he actually orchestrated some things in such a way. You're not just here. What did God have to do to do that, to get you where you are right now? I just think that's fascinating. I think about the courage that you had to, some of you had to exhibit just to get your butt where it is. It's amazing to me. Open your eyes, folks. That's going on all around you. Notice people. These are opportunities to just express love. Some dude saddles up next to you at a urinal. Now, I don't get all weird. Like, you know, just say, hey. How you doing? Who knows what will come out of it? It just might be Dick Vermeil's brother. Everyone is someone. Really. Everyone is someone. Train your eyes to see. And then assign worth. Assign worth to the people that you see. I do this all the time, and especially when I see someone and I think, wow, that's painful just to look at. They're expressing their personalities with all kinds of strange things. You guys know, and I just, I just do this. I just say, that's somebody's baby girl. That's somebody's baby girl, or it's somebody's baby boy. And then I just try to train my eyes and say, now, what kind of story brought them to this? What's going on? It's amazing how soft my heart becomes. And I have to tell you, I am not great at this. I have have a pretty narrow view about what people ought to look like. Just being honest. You get outside of that, and it gets weird for me. And I just have to, that's somebody's baby girl. And it immediately brings them in. It just helps me. When I recognize... Not only is it somebody's baby girl or baby boy, or somebody, the dreams that they had for their lives, they're created in the image of God. God has demonstrated his love for them over and over again. And the story that I embrace as God's story is just chock full of strange characters. (laughs) that you and I wouldn't have picked to lead anything. Abraham's a liar. Jacob's a schemer. Moses, David, even Paul were complicit in murders. The poor, the uneducated, the unschooled. These are God's candidates for favor. If when you think of yourselves, you normally think of something that you don't have or you can't do, that qualifies you. You know what disqualifies you is if you're sitting there right now going, I got this. You ain't got nothing, really. Let me just say that in love, in kindness. You ain't all that. And then collectively, as we express this love for other people, where there is illness, we try to build a hospital. Where there's hunger, we try to give food away. Where there's thirst, we try to dig a well. Where there's injustice, we try to stand for justice. Where there's a lack of education, we try to build a school. Where there's loneliness, we try to build a life group in somewhere around that community. Where there's a need to care for, we do the very best we can to care for that need. We're not doing it perfectly not doing as well as we hoped, but we're working at it. Here's a chart that says how we've been working at it for the last five years. It shows you the percentage of money that was given outside of our walls. I know that one of my primary measurements that I ask in terms of health for us, and I know that this is Jay's concern as well, he's, what he looks for in measures is not how much was given, but how much was given away. And if you just add the next slide, you can see where we started from. This is where we were the very first year I came. And if you wanted to look at all of the years in total, you'd find that over 21 years, there's been about $70 million given to this community of people. And we've given away $22.5 million of it, which is 32%. Now, think about this. If we just stay faithful and stay generous and stay kind to our neighbors, our goal is to give more and more away. Forty years from now, we'll be in excess probably, if patterns stay anywhere consistent to what they are, probably over $200 million will have been given, given in this community of people. It may be as much as 70 or $75 had have been given away. Somebody asked me when we were first building this building. I said, why don't you just take that money you're raising to build this building, which is about three million bucks. Why don't you just take that and give it away? The world would be way better off. And if you were just asking for how is it going to happen in the calendar year, they were correct. They were absolutely right. If you're talking about this calendar year, yes, you're right. Would have been way better off. But if, by, if Jesus tarries and this community stays generous and 75 million is given away, this is the strategy of loving our neighbor. This is how we are going about it. And it's not just with money. Beautiful day is coming, October 8 and 9. For those of you who are pretty new, and are just wondering, what does beautiful day look like? It's, it's what we do is we stop our services inside of our walls, and we go have church outside of our walls. We've got 17, 18 projects for you to figure out. They've Some for kids, some without kids, some in your area for sure, unless you live really far away. And we're asking you, all of you, to find a project and serve. We are looking to have 100% involvement in this. Nobody should show up here on the 9th and say, "Oh, I forgot we weren't having church because they're signed up to go somewhere else." Everybody, all of you. If you're saying, "Well, I'm not very skilled," well, you're looking at one of the least skilled dudes in the crew in the group. Actually, I don't end up ever doing anything. I become a cheerleader. I come up and I just go, way to hammer, man. That's, a, that's the best hammering I've ever seen. And great digging of a ditch over here. That's the way to dig. Thank you for painting, whatever you're doing. You, you got a spot. You can help us with this. Make beautiful day a plan for your fall. Get signed up. Don't wait. It always freaks the team out when you wait. So just go ahead and get signed up now. Let them sleep a little bit better. Love makes the biggest difference when it gets small. Mother Teresa said, not all of us can do great things, but we can do small things with a great love. And whatever excuse you've got for how you love your neighbor, let me finish with this. Why is it so important? Matthew twenty five, Jesus says, "Truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me." First John. John is a unique apostle in that he lived; he's the only one that didn't die of basically being killed or executed. And he lives a very long life, and um, church history tells us that he spent his last few, last few months really at the church in Ephesus, and he was so old that they couldn't, he couldn't walk, so they would carry him in on a mat, and they would hold up his head, and they would say, "John, Brother John, what do you have for us today? And he would say, Dear children, love one another. And they'd lower his head, and they'd carry him out. He wrote this, Whoever says, I know him, Jesus, but does not do what he commands, is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. Later on, he says in 1 John 3, let us not love with words or speech, but in deed and action. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts in response to his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him everything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is the command, to believe in the name of the son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he's commanded. Here's the deal. And I say this as kindly, but as clearly as I can. If you say you love God, and you do not love your neighbor, you do not love God. You love. You do something over here, you're doing some religious thing, but according to the scriptures, if love of God does not equal into loving of your neighbor as we've defined it this morning, you don't love God. And so why is this so important? It's the litmus test. It's, it doesn't save you, just you don't do it to get saved. But if you, to, in order to know that you're in, you ask yourself, Does my life reflect a concern? And if you say, Dude, I did, you got to understand my life doesn't have any margin for anybody else. Then I would say to you, Wait, you're saying you live in such a way that nobody but you is a concern for every minute of your day? Yeah, that's about the full of it. Then you're not in. I, I just, that's, don't get mad at me. Get mad at John. Get mad at Jesus. This is it. This is what his people will be known for. And this is what he asks us to do. Let's pray. Father, you have given us an expression of your love for us that is so clear and so humbling that even in our worst, even in our worst days, your love is fully expressed to us and that Christ died for us. And more than that, he was raised from the dead that we might have eternal life. And now you've left for us the task of loving our neighbor. May every one of us understand what it looks like to take a few steps forward in that right now. Whether it's a literal neighbor back in our neighborhood that we need to bridge a gap with. Whether it's someone that we've, we need to contact and express concern for. Whether it's a relationship that needs to be repaired or a relationship that's been ignored that needs to be acknowledged. Whatever it is, God. Do that in us and do it in such a way that it's happening in us so vibrantly that collectively when we come together, we just can't help but spill out love all over everybody else. That you would do a work in us as a community of people that loves our neighbors, our city, our world as best we can, God. More of your will would be accomplished in us. May it be so. In Jesus' name, amen.